0: This is James Coover with K-State Research and Extensions Wildcat District with your Extension Crop Report. Now is about the time when whiteheads start appearing in the wheat fields as grain is filled. These whiteheads can be used in small patches scattered throughout a field or covering entire areas. In some cases, it's just a few spikelets on a head that are white, or it could be the entire head. What is assumed, there are all kinds of reasons for whiteheads in wheat, including insects, diseases, and environment. The following information is from K State Agronomy Update from our state weed specialist Dr. Romulo Ladu, Eric DeWolf, and Kelsey Anderson. In many years, one very common cause of whiteheads or missing spikelets is freeze damage. I don't expect either of these situations to be true this year in this area. While our spring was actually colder than the last few years, there were never temperatures low enough to hurt the wheat for a growth stage it was in. Another weather event that we see affect wheat to some amount every year is hail. Since hail is really widespread, it just depends on what sort of storms the field saw during the heading and grain fill. Hail impact can smack a wee head and just kill that part of the head. The damaged part of the head turns white, and often the spikelets fall off after a few days. We've been having plenty of storms after the heads emerge to likely see some hail damage. Along with hail that spring storms bring, they also bring flooding. Areas of flooded fields where wheat roots stands in water for a few days will end up dying. Logically, this follows terrace channels, waterways, and field edges. How this affects yield depends on how far along the greenfield was before the plant died. By this time during the year, it will look like the wheat is just naturally coloring early. But once the combine gets into the flooded spot, it can be seen that much of the wheat died before the filled. Beyond the physical causes of white wee heads, we are likely to see plenty of diseases this year. When there is rainy weather during flowering, some heads can get infected with Viserium head blight, also known as head scab. This fungal disease can be seen in a few spikelets or the entire head. The way to differentiate this issue is that the fungus creates pink or orange fungal masses on the affected spikelet surface. Later after grain is filled, those kernels will be shriveled and lightweight. Fusarium head blight is also the fungus that can produce vomitoxin, which as farmers know, can be a very serious problem in some years. Just the presence of fusarium doesn't automatically mean vomitoxin, the levels of chemical can vary greatly. Taecol is a fungal disease that also likes wet years, but this one affects the wheat roots and lower stems that can be identified by black discoloration. The fungus lives in association with other grasses, so wheat on the field edges is at most risk. There are a few other diseases that also affect wheat heads, but don't kill them outright. Weed fungus, such as stagonora blotch, can expand from the leaves onto the wheat heads and cause black fungal bodies to grow within the spikelets. This is another disease of concern considering frequent rains and high humidity over the past couple of weeks. If there are any questions on unexpected white wheat heads in fields or troubled areas within the field, please give me a call at 620-724-8233. This has been James Cooper with your Extension Crop Report. Next up, we'll have Wendy Powell, Livestock Production Agent for the Wildcat District.
1: Hi, this is Wendy Powell, your Livestock Production Agent with the Wildcat Extension District. Dry conditions may lead to increased foot issues. It's a good idea to work with your veterinarian and have a treatment plan. Foot rot is a common disease caused by bacterial infection beneath the skin of the foot. Lameness is evident even early in the disease process. A break in the skin between the toes will be noticeable, along with a foul, pungent odor. Swelling usually starts below the dew claws. As the disease progresses, the swelling will move up the leg. It's always important to closely inspect swollen areas. Wire, bell wrap, or such can wrap around the lower foot, causing very similar symptoms as foot rot. Bacteria that cause foot rot are common in the environment and in the digestive tract. These pathogens invade through a break in the skin. Cracked skin between the hooves often occurs during the continuously dry conditions. Other environmental factors can be short abrasive stubble, thorns, rocky ground, or even standing in ponds for a long period of time. Early diagnosed foot rot can be treated easily with antibiotics. Delayed treatment can result in damage to tendons, joints, or bone and requires extensive therapy. Single-sided swelling of the foot often indicates a more serious condition, a deep structure issue. Puncture wounds, sole abscesses, stone bruises, or chronic infections can cause joint, bone, or tendon infections. Extensive footwork on a tilt table or under sedation is often required in these cases. Septic arthritis is a bacterial infection that can cause joints to swell, triggering lameness. In Kevs, you might see this after around a respiratory disease. Even with treatment, the inflammation takes several weeks to heal. Joint swelling in mature animals can also occur, commonly the result of an orthopedic breakdown. Breeding sires can suffer torn ligaments in the stifle or hock damage. Obvious lameness without noticeable swelling can be challenging to diagnose. One of these conditions is called hairy heel warts, also known as digital dermatitis or strawberry foot rot. These animals display obvious lameness and will attempt to walk on their tippy toes. There will be wart-like growths or bright red scab lesions between the dewclaw and the heel bulb of the foot. Topical treatment with an antibacterial solution is warranted. Common among fresh stalker calves is toe-tip necrosis, or toe abscesses. These animals often appear with shifting lameness of the back legs. They stand in strange postures to release pressure off the damaged toe outside toes are usually most affected. Treatment of these consists of picking up the feet, using hoof testers to confirm the condition, then the toes are slightly opened with hoof nippers to release the pressure, followed by injectable antimicrobial treatment. Without opening the toes, healing will not occur. Lameness can be challenging to diagnose, but understanding the subtle differences will help with proper and timely treatment. To learn more about livestock conditions, give me a call at the Labette County Extension Office. 620-784-5337
0: Thanks, Wendy. And now, here's Davin Scrantz, Natural Resource and Diversified Ag Agent with her report.
2: This is Davin Scrantz, one of the Agriculture and Natural Resource Agents from the K-State Research and Extension Wildcat District of Crawford, Clement, Montgomery, and Wilson Counties with your K-State Research and Extension report. Wildlife damage problems can be prevented with good management. The primary aim should be to prevent damage from occurring. When it does occur, each problem should be studied individually. The best wildlife damage management program is based on the following principles. Most of the damage is caused by relatively few individuals, not by all of them. When this individual or individuals is removed, damage will stop and the people who experience the problem are in the best position to locate the animal and reduce losses promptly. Changes in management of the property being damaged may be needed to prevent further loss or a reoccurrence of loss at a later time. Considerable damage from wild animals occurs directly to crops and livestock and as a health problem to man and domestic animals. Nearly all wild animals in Kansas are native and they provide equilibrium to the environment. Managing only the species considered to be good or endangered is not recommended. Sometimes animals considered to be beneficial can be equally damaging, such as deer in an orchard, squirrels in a pecan grove, or muskrats in a pond dike. In reality, any animal can be either good or bad, depending on the situation. Populations fluctuate due to environmental influences. Animals change normal population parameters to recover from the loss of individuals. Because of these responses, control efforts will be less effective. In good habitat, animal populations respond to removal with increased birth rate, decreased mortality, and decreased immigration. Changes in mortality, birth, and dispersal rates occur in response to decreased density. Species that reproduce seasonally exhibit an annual cycle. During the reproductive period, births normally exceed deaths and the population increases. When reproduction ceases, mortality exceeds recruitment and the population declines until the next breeding season. A population change of two to five fold is not uncommon during an average animal cycle. Factors that affect this pattern include immigration, adverse weather, and habitat disruption. The cycle is most pronounced in species that produce only one litter per year. Wildlife damage also fluctuates with cycles. Damage is seldom a problem when populations are low. During peak years, damage may become severe and require frequent intensive control efforts. From the K-State Research and Extension Wildcat District, this has been a Davin Srantz with your K-State Research and Extension report.
0: Thank you, Davin. And now, here is Jesse Gilmore with his report.
3: With K-State Research and Extension's Wildcat District, this is Jesse Gilmore bringing you this week's edition of the Hort Report. In order to avoid home energy costs, some people are turning to firewood as their primary source of heat. Not all trees are good choices for firewood. The heat firewood produces when burning will depend on the dry weight of the wood. In general, the more biomass the tree has, the more heat it will produce. The biomass is measured by the weight per cord, or 128 cubic feet, of wood. Here are some of the best trees for firewood that grow well in our area. Osage Orange at 4,800 pounds per cord, Black Locust at 4,200 pounds per cord, Burr Oak at 3,800 pounds per cord, Red Oak and Mulberry at 3,500 pounds per cord, and Silver Maple at 3,000 pounds per cord. Some of these trees have special considerations when selecting firewood. Wild Osage Orange and Black Locust trees while they have the highest densities, will also have thorns that will make them difficult to transport. Some species will also spark thanks to sap or resin underneath the bark. Therefore, these species must be closely managed if burning in an open fireplace. They won't be a problem if burned in a wood-fired boiler. If trying to grow your own firewood, here are some considerations for what and how to plant. Feces will have the greatest amount of impact on how much wood you are going to get. We already mentioned which species have the greatest densities, but speed of growth also plays a key role in the effectiveness of wood burning. Black locusts, mulberry, and silver maple will have the fastest growth habits, meaning that the turnaround time for harvesting will be lower. However, black locusts can be invasive and silver maples have the lowest density per cord, so mulberry trees are a good middle-of-the-road option for density and speed of growth. If planting new trees for firewood, you want to space the trees close, between 4 to 6 feet apart, to encourage upright growth with little branching. Control weeds at the base of the tree for the first 2 years, and harvest fresh trees after 5 years. Many trees will re-sprout and can be reharvested successively. Start with 1 acre of trees and plant a fresh acre every year for 5 years so that you can get the most firewood you need for a rotation. If using firewood for recreational activities like camping, it is very important to buy firewood where you are camping and not bring firewood with you to or from the recreation site. Insect pests like the elm bark beetle, pine sawyer beetle, and emerald ash borer overwinter in downed wood including firewood. Moving these wood species to new areas increases the likelihood that the pest will become established in that area and begin destroying native tree stands. This is especially important with ash firewood. If you have any extra firewood at the recreation site, pass it on to the next campers at your site so that you don't come home with any unwanted guests. For more information on today's topic, contact your local Extension office. I can be reached at 620-724-8233 or by email at jr637 at ksu.edu. Once again, this has been Jesse Gilmore bringing you this week's Ford Report.
0: Thank you, Jesse, and thank you for listening to K-State Research and Extension's Wildcat District Ag Team on KDGF 690 Radio.